This is the collection of atoms known as Jason Gotts, and you might be wondering what this show is all about. Think The Muppet Show with less comedy and no Muppets, but still the element of surprise. Each episode starts with a single word. I made this season in the middle of a pandemic, and like a lot of us in confinement, I felt hungry for connection with other people and with wild, open nature. So I asked nine friends for a single word each about the natural world. I thought about the word in an audio diary. I shared each word with a musician and asked them to write a song or two. I used each word to write a short story. And I talked to nine scientists, poets, songwriters, healers, and teachers about the word, about the natural world, and lots more. This is Clever Creature Season 2, dedicated always to my brave sister, Mary. The word of the day comes from Chris Dunlap, and that word is autotomy, which I'll define for you later. All right, so the word of this episode the very cheeky word of this episode was given to me by my very cheeky friend, Chris Dunlap, who I met in graduate school at St. John's in Santa Fe, um, and who is an extraordinary creature in so many ways. And this word is autotomy, which I actually, I mean, I knew the concept, but I did not know the word before. So axolotls, which are a sort of salamander-like thing, they're quite remarkable. Amy Nezukumatato has written about them very engagingly in World of Wonders, her book of essays. Anyway, axolotls and some kinds of lizards, and I suppose octopuses as well, some octopuses and other cephalopods, they do this thing where if they're being attacked, they can just drop a limb and then that limb regenerates later. So for survival purposes, they can just, you know, drop the limb and then flee. I don't know if there's a formal difference in biology between those animals that can drop the limb, like kind of eject it versus those where the limb just grows back if it happens to be bitten off. That I don't know about. Anyway, it seems rather gory and gruesome, right? A little scary, perhaps, but it's also quite wonderful in a lot of ways. Metaphorically, I think it relates to the difficult process and the necessary process that we all have to go through all the time of letting parts of ourselves go. You know, our lives are constantly in flux. The world is constantly changing around us and our expectations don't always match up with the reality. I remember learning that some of the most difficult logic puzzles like the one where you have to like get X number of people across a river in a boat, but you can only take a certain number at one time and yada, yada, yada. I'm actually quite terrible at these sorts of puzzles, but apparently puzzles like that often rely on our defying a natural tendency to move in only one direction. So like once we've gotten a couple of people across the river, we don't want to bring them back. But that's exactly what you have to do to solve that puzzle. Take some over, bring a couple of them back. And so in a sense, take a step backward to take two steps forward, which I think, unfortunately, Stalin said, but it's true. Sometimes you have to do that. And so autonomy is that kind of act, right? You take a step backward to take two steps forward. 
you jettison something that is no longer serving you or that might be the death of you in order to grow, in order to survive. In my personal case, acting, once long ago, I wanted to be an actor. I went to college for acting. And it was really, really hard to admit to myself, as I did sometime in my 20s, that I'm not an actor, that that's not really what I want to be. And it was especially hard because I didn't know what else I wanted to be. And so I had to kind of let that limb of acting go, which had been an identity hook, crutch, whatever, the central part of my identity since high school, and walk into the unknown of my future. And it wasn't easy. And there were some hard years after that, actually. But it was the right thing to do. It was the necessary thing to do. I'm also thinking of Death of a Salesman, which I recently rewatched that brilliant film version with Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich. That part where Biff, the son, who because of Willie's outrageous expectations has actually become a liar and a thief and betrayed everything that Willie wanted for him, Willie Loman, his father. And Biff says something like, kill that dream now before somebody gets hurt kill that dream now. And I always found that interesting, right? How the dreams that we want can sometimes become a lethal threat to us. And we need to recognize that, notice that. And I've recently had to do something very similar in the case of my son. I've realized that I have these expectations for him and these ideas about who he is and who he should be that don't take into account the whole of his reality and that sometimes divide him against himself. I'm pushing him in certain directions based on his talents and what's gotten me excited, you know, but actually disregarding um, and devaluing so much of who he is and the things that matter to him. And one mustn't do that. And when that happens, it's time for some autotomy. The music in this song is by my extremely talented friend, Adi Sadak, who also did the music for the song in the episode called Transition. And like that song, this is very, very different from anything else I've ever written lyrics and sung to. Enjoy.
This story is called Autotomy, or The Plain True Spirit. And it's a longish one, so settle in with a tea or a whiskey or whatever your pleasure may be. The personhood of Sacred Light wasn't the most conservative settlement of its kind. Just 50 miles down the road, for example, you had the people of the Undivided Word, notoriously run so repressively by its charismatic little tyrant Papa Farber that women and girls, it was always women and girls, periodically escaped and ran to the press, drawing the kind of attention that the personhood had always been careful to avoid. Peg and Luther Vanderhoek, who had founded it in the mid-80s, weren't ostentatious people. They weren't fundamentalists either, exactly, although both had been personally saved, coincidentally, within a few days of one another and by the same mechanism, a message in a lucid dream calling each of them out west on foot, an epic pilgrimage to be made in plain leather sandals like the ones the Savior had worn on the many long wanderings of his too brief life. They had met up in French Lick, Indiana, and realized to their mutual astonishment that they shared a common purpose. And in conversation for the rest of the nearly 1,500-mile journey to Wyoming, they had fleshed out that purpose in detail. It was simple. Build a community in the plain, true spirit of Christ, the spirit that had never really manifested on earth since his crucifixion. Every religious community Peg and Luther had ever known had veered one way or another from the indisputable core Christian values of love and kindness and care for the needs of others over your own. The source of the corruption was always the same, power. Some individual or clique got too wrapped up in their own authority, and everybody else in the community ran around trying to avoid their disapproval, which always became increasingly difficult. This was Vanderhoek's first axiom. The longer any person or group held power in a community, the more eccentric and capricious the rules of rectitude became. On the way out there, this was how their work proceeded, like that of many such ventures in human history. They started by listing all the things they didn't like. Small-mindedness, hierarchy, gossip, selfishness, jealousy, and so on. These things would have no place in the personhood of sacred light. From there, Peg and Luther or mostly Peg, with a lot of grinning from Luther and outbursts of right on and for sure. Team sports tended to encourage division and tribalism. Competition could be positive, healthy even, but it was too difficult to control. But activities like swimming or games without scores, like trying to keep a ball bouncing against a roof without letting it touch the ground, Peg could see no harm in those. Communal cooking, too. Nothing too fancy that might elevate some talented chef above the rest, promoting pride and envy, but good, simple, healthy, vegan meals, augmented, if at all, by salt. Peg had a suspicion of pepper, a small and perhaps forgivable eccentricity. With its slight sting, pepper struck her as controlled masochism, a kind of subtle culinary hair shirt. Luther agreed with her. Pepper was out. Babies and pets were to be encouraged. Marriage was important, but divorce was always possible so long as there was evidence that at least one partner had made a meaningful effort to salvage the relationship. To help with this, and to ease the burdens of communal life in general, Peg and Luther agreed that there must be at least one psychologist in residence for every 20 members, with free individual and group counseling sessions offered daily. Right down the line, Peg and Luther were on the same page about everything, with one exception. Peg's idea was that money wouldn't exist in the personhood. They had a good laugh over that image of the camel getting threaded through the eye of a needle and coming out the other side a gory camel noodle, and then she turned deadly serious. 
Luther, it's just contrary to everything I'm trying, we're trying to do here. Money leads to greed and jealousy. We don't need it. We can grow our own crops, build everything we need from stone and trees and earth. Luther was averse to conflict and tended to grin and nod continuously whenever Peg spoke. Peg, I hear you. And you're right, of course, he said, grinning and nodding. I'm only thinking about this from another dimension. Consider the Amish. Communities like this often find themselves in competition with the modern world. The harder they try to shut it out, the more of their children they lose to the disco lifestyle. It becomes an irresistible lure, a symbol of everything they feel they've been denied. So how do you counteract this? You assimilate the threat, inoculate with a tolerable dose. Have a community disco night, for example, or when it comes to money, encourage entrepreneurship up to a point, of course, and with the rule that all income is transparent and all profits go to the community. You kill more than one bird with that stone because income allows for quality of life improvements that will make the personhood more attractive and thus harder to leave for the shiny lures of the big city. Modern plumbing, refrigeration, streetlights. I'm not talking about yachts here, Peg. Just a standard of living that isn't so glaringly 18th century that people start to wonder, is this what God really wants for me? In the end, Luther's arguments won out, and the conversation shifted to marketing. How would they attract people to build the new community? This led to the uncomfortable but inevitable question of who were the right kind of people for the personhood, and how would they screen them, and whether the whole notion of a right kind of people wasn't, in fact, unchristian and antithetical to the whole project. In the end, they decided this was one of those issues that are best left to faith, and that when the time was right, the right answers would present themselves. One thing about a 1,500-mile journey on foot is that you meet a lot of people along the way. And such was Peg's and Luther's enthusiasm about their vision that the marketing more or less took care of itself. In Diagonal, Iowa, they met Gordon, a 27-year-old Navajo adrift from New Mexico since alcohol had put him in an emergency room, afraid that if he ever went home, he'd start drinking again and end up dead. On the reservation, Gordon had been a radio DJ, and he spoke with a booming, definitive voice, as if everything he said was capitalized. I like the way you all are thinking, he told Peg and Luther. I'm a Sunday Christian at best, but I'd like to give it a go if you'll have me. In Weeping Water, Nebraska, they met two girls, Chantel and Sarah Vastri, best friends from community college who'd followed the Grateful Dead for a year and become disillusioned with the whole thing. It's the Pied Piper, said Saravastri. I mean, they're sincere about it and all, but we're talking about a makeshift tent community that's hanging on the fringe of a big, giant commercial machine. Jerry and company stay rich, while the rest of us sell tie-dyes in the parking lot, just trying to scrape together enough for the next ticket. Yeah, said Chantel. There's nothing wrong with the message. Love each other, live for the music, but you got to put down roots in the world. Peg and Luther's vision was big enough for those who wanted to live by Christian values without a direct calling from Jesus. That could come in time, or not. Actions were what mattered. On the 56th day, they arrived in Lost Cabin, Wyoming, at a vast plain with a for sale sign abutting a deep stretch of timberland. A look passed between Peg and Luther. They had both understood instantly that this was the place. By that time, the personhood of Sacred Light had swelled to 12 people of various ages, some married, some single, all of them optimistic as only Americans can be at the start of something new, something they believe, as only Americans can, to be unprecedented in the whole of human history. Within a month, the foundations of the new community were feeling firm. 
They bought an old school bus and painted it pale blue, with a shining yellow sun on each side, its rays extending and widening in every direction. Within a year, thanks to weekly field trips to nearby towns like Shoshone, the personhood had 30 members, seven new marriages, and nine babies on the way, one of them Peg and Luther's soon-to-be daughter, Gethsemane. Like any community, the personhood wasn't perfect. Peg had gone into it thinking that if you just got the foundations right, and if people's hearts were in the right place, disagreements wouldn't arise. And even if they did, they could be dispatched quickly in the daily community meetings through a reasonable conversation without too much fuss or formality. That worked for a couple of years. But then, within a week, six separate women complained that Jerry Banka, a 74-year-old widower who had previously seemed affable and harmless, if a little crude at times, had been spying on them through a hole in the communal showers. At the evening meeting, Peg and Luther just barely managed to quell a pitchfork-and-torch-style rebellion. "'Listen, listen!' shouted Peg. "'This is a psychological issue. Jerry needs our love and support right now. He needs counseling.' "'Excuse me?' yelled Lucy, one of the women he'd been spying on. "'I've been sexually assaulted, and I have to stand here in the same room as my attacker and be instructed to love him?' Jerry stood up. "'I'm a man,' he said. "'I'm weak, and I got urges. "'I get that what I did was wrong, but I ain't the first, "'and I sure as heck won't be the last.' "'The room exploded in outrage, "'everybody shouting over everybody else, "'some people physically restraining others "'from a sincere intention to tear Jerry limb from limb "'like Pentheus in the Bacchae. "'Please sit down, Jerry,' said Peg. "'Listen, everyone.' Until now, we've managed to live together, more or less in harmony. We've managed to build a community of love and mutual care. This incident is difficult. More difficult than anything Luther and I anticipated when we set up the personhood. It seems we need some kind of structure to deal with this. All I ask is that you give us 24 hours. I promise you, there's a sane, nonviolent solution. And that's how the Council of Solomonic Wisdom was born. Ten of the most respected members of the community elected to meet and handle crises like the Jerry Bonka case. Peg and Luther recused themselves, and the whole personhood voted to respect the council's decisions as binding. The council's first meeting mandated three weekly therapy sessions for Jerry until the psychologist was satisfied that he understood the harm he'd done and wouldn't repeat the offense. An unlimited extra counseling was offered to the victims at their discretion. The hole in the showers would be repaired, of course, and the general maintenance plan overhauled to catch these kinds of things earlier, thwarting any temptation. Also, to satisfy the demand for justice in the most humane way possible, it was determined that Jerry would not be welcome at community meetings until the conclusion of his treatment, at which time he would be expected to give a sincere and thoughtful public apology. And so life hummed along in the personhood of the sacred light, and was, for the most part, happy. People felt respected and necessary. They felt that their complaints, however few, were heard. As the community grew bigger and bigger, there was so much work of so many kinds to be done that no one had trouble finding something fulfilling to do. Gordon, for example, got FCC licensed and started a local radio station, playing jazz and blues music and waxing poetic about life in the personhood. More than once, a stranger driving by on Badwater Road finding themselves transfixed by Gordon's captivating bass voice, ended up a part of the community. Life here? What can I say? One of these monologues might begin. It's not about champagne and caviar. 
though we're not against celebrating now and then. It's about something America has lost, or had lost, until Peg and Luther Vanderhoek were called to found the personhood of sacred light. It's about community, not in that phony sense of how your kid's soccer team is supposed to be a community or something. The people here are family. We take the good and the bad and the ugly in each other, and we accept it in ourselves. Ah, I'm sounding like a Hallmark card. Point is, life here is simple and honest and joyful and fun. We laugh a lot, we eat good food, we work hard, and we enjoy the fruits of our labor. Where I come from, there's a lot of history at work. A lot of wounds too deep to heal, so I came here to start over. And so can you. So can anyone. Sounds too good to be true, right? Sounds like some kind of cult. But I'm telling you, there's no guru, no weird rituals, no secret torture chambers. It's just decent, open-minded people making a life together. Living in Christ's spirit of love out here in the wilderness. There I go again with the Hallmark memories. Let's cut to something truly unsentimental. Skip James, Hard Time Killing Floor. Almost from birth, Peg and Luther's daughter Gethsemane seemed to embody the true spirit of the personhood. If her parents had genetically engineered her for the purpose, she couldn't have been more perfect. When she smiled at you, you felt like the source of all happiness in the universe. As a little kid, Gethsemane flitted from place to place, tagging along on house painting projects or helping the chefs clean the vegetables. Everybody loved her. Everybody felt, and this is no exaggeration, that she was a kind of a sweet adhesive or a lubricant or both, holding the community together, keeping the friction out of the system. At home, she was everything any parent could wish for, helpful, cheerful, self-sufficient, and she was precocious too. At six years old, after a few days of careful observation, she started making Luther's coffee for him in the mornings. She cleared and washed the dishes without being asked. When there was nothing left to do, she read books, beginning with cartoon histories of economics and philosophy and ancient Rome, and moving on, surprisingly young, to the non-cartoon versions. If Peg and Luther needed further convincing that building the personhood was God's plan for them, Gethsemane was their daily evidence. By her twelfth year, the personhood was 500 people strong. It had its own fully functioning K-12 school, a gourmet vegan restaurant that had been profiled in several regional magazines without leading to any pride or envy as far as anybody could tell, a medical clinic staffed by 10 doctors and 7 registered nurses, and a range of wellness services, including yoga, psychotherapy, massage, and Alexander Technique, taught by Goethe, a former Broadway star who also ran two improv groups for teens and adults. Gethsemane's 12th birthday meeting was in March of the first year of the new millennium. In retrospect, that's when everything changed. Birthday meetings were a special thing in the personhood. Everyone shared anecdotes about the birthday person. Because others so often see us more clearly than we can see ourselves, these stories, over time, settled into the folds of identity, making each individual a kind of co-creation of the whole personhood. After the stories, the birthday person had a chance to express one wish for the coming year. So long as it was reasonable and unlikely to harm anybody, it was up to the community to grant it. Boxing, said Gethsemane. I want there to be boxing. An uncomfortable silence followed, everybody shifting from foot to foot and trying to work out what she meant. Like, packaging? 
said her father, genuinely baffled. No, said Gethsemane. Competitive boxing, the sport. I want there to be training. And fights. Sensing that Peg was about to say something harsh, Luther continued in a Socratic tone. Well, sweetie, you know that we've never had competitive sports in the personhood. Why do you think we made that decision right from the beginning? Gethsemane had never before argued with her parents, and certainly not in public, but all her reading had formidably equipped her for this kind of debate. You made it because you believe that competition causes division, but I'm questioning that premise. I believe that competition is a natural human drive. What causes division is the repression of competition on the one hand, or, on the other hand, it's being given exaggerated importance, like on Wall Street. The personhood has always been a reasonable, pragmatic community. You've always tried to strike a sensible balance between Christian values and human nature. But when it comes to the competitive drive, I think we can do better. But why boxing? said Peg, visibly shaken and trying to remain calm. It's so violent. That's a stereotype, said Gethsemane. We have competent nurses and doctors. We can get the latest protective equipment. At the first sign of medical trouble, we can call a timeout. But boxing is competition in its most elemental form. Hemingway says, I don't care what Hemingway says, Peg interjected. Hemingway was a drunk and a... Peg stopped short. All over the meeting hall, hands had shot up, giving the three-fingered sign requesting a meeting of the Council of Solomonic Wisdom. Without a doubt, there was the required three-fourths majority. A birthday wish was a thing not to be taken lightly, especially when it came from such a beloved member of the personhood. And so the council met, and it was decided that, after some careful research and under close supervision, a small boxing program would begin that fall. The personhood was divided. Some saw this as an ill omen, the beginning of the end. Many others saw it as progress, a sign of the strength of the community, that it could embrace the new without fear of falling apart. Dozens of teens and young adults showed up for the first round of training, and the first season was a massive success. The fights drew most of the community, and those who came said it had been years since they'd felt so alive. There were dissenters, of course, Peg included, who said she just couldn't stand the violence, but they were a minority, so their complaints sounded petty and peevish. The council was on the lookout for any danger signs. At first, there were only a few. When Rachel Benicia lost to Ariana Jellico in the women's bantamweight, someone spray-painted loser on the front porch of her house. Teachers noticed more aggression in the schoolyard and held school-wide meetings to talk about leaving our differences in the ring. And in spite of the equipment and the medical staff, two fighters that first year ended up in the hospital. By the second year of the boxing program, it was impossible to imagine life in the personhood without it. All summer, people gossiped enthusiastically about who'd been training hardest, about whose body had changed the most. Friends and families bonded in support of their favorite fighters. Casual conversations at community picnics erupted in vicious arguments until some neutral party appealed to the spirit of personhood and everyone felt ashamed and muttered their apologies. And then Gethsemane started taking bets. In seventh grade math class, she'd gotten excited about probability and read up on horse racing. She'd taught herself how to calculate odds, run a game, and keep the books. It had mostly worked out, Luther's insistence on allowing commerce in the personhood. From the businesses they had started, people turned over the vast majority of their incomes to the community fund. But over time, first one, then another, 
then pretty much everybody had started to squirrel away a little something for themselves. Never enough to catch the attention of the council or draw the ire of their neighbors. But over years, it could add up. There wasn't much to spend the extra money on without looking suspicious. You couldn't show up at community meeting in a diamond necklace, so people mostly sat on it, hid it in their sock drawer or a shoebox under the bed. Gethsemane kept the bedding quiet at first, opening the game by word of mouth to people she knew would keep it to themselves. The first big fight of the season was a junior middleweight match between Gabe DeWilda and Henderson Felp, high school seniors. Henderson was known as the dancer. He moved with elegance and grace and one eye always on the audience, winking at them as he'd add a little flourish before taking his opponent down. DeWilda was no nonsense, all focus and efficiency and unadulterated power. Henderson had beat DeWilda for the previous year's junior middleweight championship, with a sidewinding punch many complained was sleazy at the very least, if not outright illegal. So the odds were in his favor, but while Henderson had spent the summer hanging out with girls by the river, DeWilda had been training six, seven hours a day. Chantel and Saravastri, the former deadheads, were like aunts to Gethsemane. Years earlier, they'd announced at a community meeting that they were more than just roommates, and the community hadn't batted an eyelash at the news. Peg and Luther had been proud of that, a real test of the authenticity of the personhood's Christian spirit. Chantel and Saravastri had gotten married, but never had a kid, so they doted on Gethsemane, and it wasn't unusual for her to bounce back and forth, week to week, from her own house to the spare bedroom they'd allowed her to decorate and make her own. Saravastri ran a small internet business, making and selling homemade organic pet food. Over the years, skimming what she called her family tithe of just 10% of the profits, she'd amassed close to 50000 Chantel knew about it, and they'd been daydreaming together for years about how to spend it. Maybe a secret vacation to Paris, telling everyone they were doing a two-week stay-at-home silent meditation retreat, or a shopping spree on appallingly expensive designer underthings no one but them would ever see. But Chantel was anxious by nature, and daydreams were daydreams. She made Saravastri promise they'd hang on to the money in case of emergency, in case everything went south with the personhood. You never knew. You just never knew. One night, while Chantel was out teaching her adult learning class in hydroponic gardening, Gethsemane was in the kitchen helping Saravastri mix up the latest batch of adult weight control dog food. You like a bit of risk, don't you? said Gethsemane, with a knowing smile. Well, said Saravastri, I suppose I do, just to keep things spicy. Not that there's much of that to be had around here. What if there were, said Gethsemane, some controlled, discreet risk that could keep things spicy? Would you be interested? Depends, said Saravastri. Are you trying to sell me drugs? I am not, said Gethsemane, and she made her pitch. The structure of Gethsemane's game was unconventional. Winnings and losses didn't just depend on the odds. They also depended on the other bets. If two people bet on the same boxer, and that boxer won, both would get a payout. But if one of them bet less money than the other, some portion of their winnings went to the one who had bet more. The percentage was proportional to the difference between the bets. If the difference was great enough, it was theoretically possible for a winner to win back less than their original bet. So for the confident or the foolhardy, there was an extra incentive to bet big. Saravastri's ambitions were less all-consuming than Gethsemane's, but she was ambitious too, and she didn't like to lose. She'd been watching DeWilda's progress over the summer and was certain not only that Henderson's win last season had been a fluke, but that DeWilda was now at least twice as powerful as the last time they'd met. 
In her mind, this was a bet she couldn't lose, and if she was going to win, she intended to win big. Without consulting Chantel, she'd earned that money after all, and she knew exactly what she was doing, Saravastri committed the whole 50K. Gethsemane made a few marks in her little book. Fight night was a Friday, and the excitement was palpable. Outside the event space, most of the community was pre-gaming with low-alcohol beer and a DJ set by Gordon. Low-alcohol beer, if you drink enough of it, becomes a lot of alcohol. So here and there, shoving matches broke out as someone or other made a nasty comment about one of the fighters, and his supporters took offense. Henderson's a fop, someone cried, and a mini stampede broke out until some cooler heads encircled it, locked hands, and escorted it out of the party like white blood cells engulfing a pathogen. DeWilda came out strong, keeping up a barrage of blows that had Henderson staggering around the ring like a drunkard. It looked like the whole thing might be over in a single round, but somehow Henderson stayed on his feet. Round two began similarly. DeWilda got Henderson against the ropes and kept him there with a flurry of punches to the abdomen, so rapid and regular they looked automated. Henderson looked like one of those Greek tragic figures who opens a birthday present to find it contains his own child's head. Standing on the sidelines, Saravastri squeezed Chantel's hand tight and leaned in close. I've got a surprise for you, baby, she whispered. But just as things were looking well and truly hopeless for Henderson, he tilted his head to the audience. The corner of his mouth curled up in a smirk, and Saravastri caught a subtle but definite wink. Uppercut, uppercut, body blow, roundhouse, uppercut. This simple, explosive, precisely timed combination landed DeWilda on his back. He made a half-hearted attempt to raise his head from the floor, but no good. He was out for the count. Back home, when Chantel heard the details of Saravastri's surprise, she went apeshit. She marched over to the Vanderhoek's house and demanded an emergency community meeting that very night. The meeting was an unusually rowdy affair, fueled by boxing adrenaline and all that low-alcohol beer and it led to an emergency all-night convening of the Council of Solomonic Wisdom. At dawn, the Council emerged with an unprecedented decision, one they all swore they had come to in sorrow, and with the greatest reluctance. Gethsemane, they said, had changed. A source of light to the community all these years, she had become an insidious threat to their whole way of life. As much as people enjoyed the boxing, it had led to violence and discord outside of the ring, and now, she had introduced gambling, which preyed upon the worst instincts of some of the most respected members of the community. In ordinary society, the world they'd left behind, Gethsemane's interests wouldn't be considered pathological. In fact, they might lead to success. But here, they presented an unacceptable risk. At least for now, Gethsemane must leave. At the community's expense, she would be sent to a boarding school to finish out her education. After that, they would meet with her and reassess. Peg was devastated. Privately, she railed against the decision, while Luther used active listening to give her rage the space it needed, to allow it to spend itself. Why can't she just go to counseling, like Jerry Bonka? she pleaded. Well, I think we know our Gethsemane. She's got her mind made up. This isn't a sickness, Peg. It's something she's trying to express about herself. Peg pleaded, raged, and wept, but Luther remained calm. He wiped away her tears, not hastily, but gingerly, following their tracks down the creases of her face. He assured her that he understood exactly what she was feeling, that any mother under the circumstances would feel the same, but that in the end, the council had everybody's best interests at heart, including Gethsemane's. 
Ultimately, she realized that the council was right. Everything they had built here, their life's work and God-given mission, was already feeling the corrupting influence of their dear, sweet Gethsemane, who possessed a hunger too great to control, too fierce for either of them to understand. A boarding school might be just the thing for her. After all, both of them had grown up in the world out there. They had had the freedom to choose a life for themselves, something that had been denied Gethsemane at birth. Of the two of them, Luther was the researcher, the one who was comfortable with computers and the internet. He found a well-regarded Quaker school about 200 miles away and started the application process. The school year had started already, but there was a spot for Gethsemane in the eighth grade. It was decided that she'd start on the 1st of November. On the morning of November 1st, Luther had the car all packed and sandwiches made for the long drive to the school. If they left by 10, they'd arrive in time for the November games, a festival at the Quaker school. Gethsemane liked games. Maybe that would start things off on the right foot. There was only one problem. Gethsemane refused to go. Ever since the council's verdict, she hadn't said a single word. Her parents had planned and prepared around her, figuring that when the time came, she'd get to the school, meet new friends, and adapt. But when they went into her room to collect her, she lay on the bed immobile, staring at the ceiling. Come on, Gigi, said Luther, trying the magic spell of her childhood pet name. But nothing. The Vanderhooks were unprepared for this. Never in the history of the personhood had anyone ever had to be forced into anything. A council verdict was as extreme as things ever got, and everyone treated the council's word as sacred. Peg was losing her patience. Get up right now, young lady, she said. This is outrageous. Get in that car with your father. But Gethsemane didn't. She didn't yell or furrow her forehead or cling to the bed sheets. She just lay there impassively with her eyes on the ceiling the kind of gaze you might rest on a hawk circling overhead. What are we going to do? whispered Luther to Peg. She's going to miss the games. In the end, to their own revulsion, they resorted to force. Luther got the shoulders and Peg got the feet, and they began to carry Gethsemane bodily out to the car. But just outside the house, she managed to kick her mother in the chin, elbow Luther in the solar plexus, and wriggle herself free. Then she ran off into the timberlands. A week's worth of search parties yielded nothing. Gethsemane was smart, and the woods were deep. But pensive Doug, as they called him, who ran the kitchens, noticed that little things kept going missing. Once it was a bag of potatoes. Once some frozen pastry dough. Doug knew intimately the appetite of everyone in the personhood, and without a doubt, this was Gethsemane's signature. She must have figured out how to cook out there. How had no one seen the smoke? There were other signs of Gethsemane, too. Little by little, voices of dissent started piping up at the community meetings, people questioning the authority of the council. One weekend afternoon, a group of teens was caught behind the school playing craps for money. When the council questioned them, asking where they'd even gotten the idea, there was a lot of furtive giggling and sidelong glances. It was the growing opinion of the council that Gethsemane had secretly made contact with one or two trusted agents and that they were quietly spreading her influence. These individuals were believed to be supplying Gethsemane with food and other means of survival. Saravastri, they believed, was probably one of them. But it was too early to make any concrete accusations. True, Chantel had awoken at 2 a.m. one morning to find the other half of the bed empty. When questioned, Saravastri had muttered some excuse about a disgruntled customer complaining about food poisoning. Also true, 
Saravastri had been seen more than once down by the library, huddling in conversation with the Gelfbeins, two of the most vocal detractors of the council. But wisdom demanded patience, and no matter how grave the threat, an overreaction could backfire. The council bided its time. Meanwhile, things got worse and worse. There was a growing faction calling for the dissolution of the council. The anti-council faction argued that the spirit of the personhood had always been about individual choice, but now the community was governed by a small, out-of-touch elite, secretly controlled by Peggy and Luther, in spite of their claims of neutrality. At home, Saravastri and Chantel fought constantly, or rather, Chantel railed at Saravastri while the latter sat there unmoved, a cynical sneer on her face. Chantel's argument was always the same. Everything was fine until Gethsemane turned 12. Then, she was possessed by the devil, and their beautiful personhood turned sick, corrupted, broken beyond recognition. Worse, maybe, Chantel could no longer recognize the Saravastri she once knew. It was as if she had been possessed by Gethsemane. You done? Saravastri said. Because I think I'm about to die of boredom. It was pensive Doug who caught her, Gethsemane that is. Waiting behind the dumpster, he allowed two thieves to sneak into then out of the pantry, bearing potatoes. He followed them to the edge of the woods. There they met Gethsemane, and he tracked her back to her lair, a comfortable little cabin she couldn't have built on her own, all camouflaged with branches. He tossed a flour sack over her head and dragged her home. Convulsed with tears, Gethsemane's parents bound and gagged their daughter and the council was quietly called. Luther crumpled into a chair. Peg tried to revive him. Sometimes God calls upon us to do things we don't think we have the strength to do, the hardest things, for the greatest good. When we're unsure in ourselves, we have to put our faith in him. Everyone else in the town was asleep or otherwise clueless. Gordon, it was decided, would drive Gethsemane hundreds of miles away to some undisclosed location and leave her there with enough food to survive for two weeks, Long enough, they reasoned, for her to get back to civilization. Somewhere else. She was young, but she was smart. She could take care of herself. This was exile, like in the toughest of the old biblical stories. Gethsemane was anathema, antithesis. Surely this time she would get the message and stay away. They bundled her into the bed of Gordon's pickup truck, securing her with bungee cords. Even tied up, she was considered too dangerous for the passenger seat. About a mile out of Lost Cabin, Gordon pulled over to the side of the road. He gathered Gethsemane in his arms and carried her to the front seat. I can't stand the thought of you bouncing around back there, he said. Not you. It's unchristian even to treat a dog this way. Once they were on the highway, he leaned over and removed her gag. The doors were locked. Her arms were still bound. What harm could talking do? You've seen what they are, said Gethsemane. You see what they became, with just the slightest nudge. Oh, come on now, Gigi, said Gordon. You took Sarvastri for 50K. You got everyone at war with everybody else. All I did was open a door, let a little light in on the hypocrisy. I'm not saying I'm a saint. I love making money. I love to win. I did it all for fun, not to teach anybody a lesson. But if your castle's made of sugar, don't blame the rain when it melts. What happened to you, honey? You went and made everything so complicated. Life's complicated. That was Peg and Luther's mistake, thinking they could sand off all the rough edges. But those edges they hate, some of them are people in your own family. Some of them 
won't just go away and leave you alone. While she spoke, Gethsemane had been quietly wriggling free of the rope. Now, as Gordon slowed down to avoid a deer, she threw it over her head, unlocked the door, and ran off into the night. She ran and ran, although she was sure Gordon was too slow and clumsy to follow. She felt the sharp sting of the prairie night air in her lungs and thought, at least I'm free, at least I'm not a sheep like the rest of them. She ran for what felt like an hour until the blood beating in her ears was louder than her footsteps crunching on the dry prairie grass. Then she came to the edge of a creek and sat down on a boulder to rest. The shovel came down hard on the back of her head, killing her instantly. Chantelle stood there in shock, breathless at what she'd been capable of, in awe of the terrible strength she'd found, she knew not where, to cut off this diseased limb, not for herself, but for Saravastri and the Vanderhooks and the rest of the personhood. She'd been hunting Gethsemane too. She was there in the shadows when pensive Doug found her, followed him back to the Vanderhooks' house, followed Gordon's truck at a safe distance, just to be sure. You just never knew. It was 3 a.m. when Gordon got back to the personhood, but he went straight to the Vanderhoek's house and told them everything. For weeks afterward, the council and its agents were on high alert for any sign of Gethsemane's return, sure that she'd be back to stir up trouble. But she never came. Now and again, there was an outburst at a meeting, some vague accusation, some demand to know what had become of her. But as day followed day, life at the personhood settled back into its ordinary, uncomplicated ways. The outside world was full of so much strife, but here, people had to admit, they were basically happy. Who knew what might have become of that troubled little girl? She could be anywhere. Maybe she'd found her own place to belong. Before I introduce the guest, just a quick note to say that all of these conversations were recorded in the fall and winter of 2020, either just before or just after the U.S. presidential election and several months into the pandemic, in case any of those themes come up. What has the power to lift you out of the everyday? What, if anything, sends your spirit soaring high above the traffic jam or lets it sink deep beneath the irritating buzz of politics and logistics and commerce? For so many people in the modern world, religion no longer does the trick. And drinking, TV, and scrolling through Instagram are, in my opinion, pretty shabby substitutes. When I was in high school, first poetry and then theater, which was poetry in action, blew my world wide open. Our Catholic church was a dull weekly routine of mumbling, kneeling, and mirthless singing, but the theater was a holy and dangerous place, crackling with tangible magic. It could reveal you, dissolve you, and if you came, as I did, troubled in spirit, it could mysteriously transform that trouble into joy. My guest today is theater director Andre Gregory. A child of material privilege and emotional poverty, he found in theater a lifeline back to himself. This is the subject of his funny, wise, sometimes heartbreaking new book, This Is Not My Memoir. Welcome, Andre. Thank you. So I went back, I went back and watched a lot, of, a lot of your work, but one of the things was my dinner with Andre, which I loved as much as I did 
20 years ago when I saw it first. And um, there's a bit in it where, in the beginning, where Wallace Shawn talks about how somebody saw you leaning against a wall crying about, I, I guess it's a line from a Bergman film. If I'm not misquoting it, I could always live in my art, but never in my life. I feel like that was sort of true for you in the beginning, and then and then maybe not so much later, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on how that, how that line applies to what theater was to you when you came into it and, and how your work evolved over the years. When I went into the theater, uh, I guess because of my childhood, I was a driven, unhappy, anal, obsessive, <laughs> uh, ambitious, compulsive. And the theater, sadly for my family at the time, although since then I've become a very good father, uh, but I was just so in self-involved and driven by ambition and a passion, a real passion for the theater, that right. it was all theater, theater, theater. Um, as time went by, partly because I left the theater for 12 years, or the theater left me for 12 years, uh, partly because of a lot of psychotherapy, and partly right. because of a spiritual guru, which is why I thought you're talking about the theater as being holy, uh, is a very important subject. Um, and maybe less testosterone. <laughs> I just became a nicer guy, a happier guy, a warmer guy. That's interesting because sort of the myth of the artist, when I was first becoming interested in art, when you start out wanting to be an artist and you don't actually yet have anything to say or know exactly what it is you're going to say, but you know that you want to be able to do what those magicians are, are doing, there was this idea that I got I think from the culture, just absorbed from the culture, that an artist was exactly what you're describing. Like someone miserable, someone utter, utterly driven and obsessive, basically an, an asshole in all human res respects. And that without that, you didn't get art, you know? And I guess that may have been true for the kind of art that you were trying to do at that time, like Alice in Wonderland, which you've described as kind of a channeling of a lot of your family demons and just kind of psychodrama, you know, working those things out on the stage. And also if you're rehearsing all day, almost all year, and at night you're giving the actors notes, you don't have much time or much to give to anyone else, which right. is sad, but I totally, I totally don't buy that whole concept. <laughs> First, the suffering artist. There was some artist who went to the psychoanalyst Maria van Frantz, who wrote that great book, Prisoners of Childhood, and he wanted to go into uh, analysis, but he was afraid that it could harm his creativity. Right, right. And Maria van Frantz said to him, my dear, the unconscious is so vast that if you were in analysis with me for your whole life, it would be like <laughs> dipping a spoon in the ocean. You don't need right. to worry about this harming you. I think there's a cliche that you mentioned about art springing from conflict and unhappiness. And what about 
oh God, there are so many Renaissance painters and painters in general and composers who've worked out of joy and some kind of spiritual perception. So I think it's bullshit. I agree with you. I mean, there's no music, for example, that, you know, if if one had to rank music, which is, of course, a stupid thing to do, I don't think there's anything better than Bach. Mm-hmm. You know, the Brandenburg concertos or something. And, th- and that, yeah. And there's so much joy, so much joy in, in there. And even when there is sorrow, it's the sorrow of love. It's the sorrow of loss. It's a sorrow that's connected, not that's selfish or something. Yeah, I remember there was... Uh, quite a good playwright who liked my work as a director. And he called me and he said, I would love you. I would love to create a project for you that you would direct. And I said, wow, how interesting. Come on over. And I gave him tea and I said to him, how about you're writing a play about two happy marriages? (laughs) I never heard from him again. This is really interesting because I've been thinking a lot about this lately. You know how in media generally, but also in men's work, there's been this obsession with the story arc and with the idea, the hero's journey, you know, Joseph Campbell's idea of the hero's journey. And people write screenplays, they write, when they write plays, they return to this thing. There's this focus on the idea that like conflict is absolutely central to every story. There cannot be a story, you know, conflict is the engine of, of keeping our attention. Right. And of course, sometimes we triumph over the conflict and that can be a hopeful story. But I have wondered, I have thought a lot about that lately. Like, is this a fetishism? You know, is this idea that like conflict is the only thing that can interest us? Is that in fact a fetishism of pain? One of the many reasons I took to painting Uh, Mm. which I've been doing now for quite a few years, was that most plays do tend to be unhappy affairs and of necessity filled with conflict. And, of course, Wally's plays, and I've directed four of them now. And you're referring to Wallace Shawn for the listener who might not... Right. His plays are extremely dark and prophetic of the shape of things to come and terrifying. But I would feel that my job was to find a way to do those extremely complex plays and also to bring some humor to the play. Sure, sure. In painting, I discovered that in fact, the original Andre, the Andre that came out of the womb before parents, school, culture screwed him over, was actually a very happy-go-lucky kind of guy filled with joy and that just looking at a beautiful object and painting it for hours and hours and hours was an extremely ecstatic experience. Do you think that the dark wrestling of your early theater years was something necessary? Do you believe in any kind of catharsis coming out of that to wrestle with the demons to move through that you know, to get to where, where you ended up. Absolutely. That's what you do in good therapy or psychoanalysis. You know, somebody once said to me that beautiful vegetables grow in shit. And <laughs> you, you know, and it's true. You know that thing that kids like to do where you hold your arms at your side and they hold your arms and you push and you push yeah. and you push. And then 
they let go and woo, your arms go into the air. Well, it's the same thing. I think if you confront your demons, then you can achieve a kind of lightness. In fact, I myself feel that Trump wasn't a unique phenomenon. I think America has been a very, as we all know, a very cruel country. If you don't face those demons, if you don't accept them, they'll come back and bite you in the ass. They'll catch up with you, you know. There was a very, very distinguished Jungian analyst who did a paper in 1940 on the German family. Not a popular theme at the time. <laughs> and from, from writing this, he came to two conclusions. One, that Germany would lose the war, which seemed quite improbable in 1940. Mm. And then he said, when the war is over and won by the Allies, there will be a tendency to judge the Germans and the Nazis as if the evil was unique to themselves rather than an eruption from the West in general. And if the huh. West won't accept that or look at that, it'll come back and bite them. In the 50s and the 60s, we had a lot of, and you were involved with a lot of like cathartic and experimental theater that was kind of an erupting forth of, you know, in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, you start to get the, the id really erupting forth. But, but before that, you know, Death of a Salesman, plays like that, where America is sort of forced to examine its soul, very dark theater where there's maybe some kind of transformative possibility. Like if we look in the mirror, if we look at these things, then maybe we collectively can grow out of them. But I, I wonder whether there comes a point, Carter 70s, Reagan 80s with Trump, whether there comes a point in the life of a nation where that sort of collective catharsis isn't even possible through art or necessarily valuable or whether, you know, or whether at least there needs to be a diversity of things that also include joy, as you're saying, because it's just so goddamn heavy, so goddamn Orwellian and, and in some ways, you know, almost inescapable that like holding up a mirror to the darkness almost becomes too much. When Wally and I were in Vienna doing one of his plays there, I would walk around this beautiful, dead city, and think, my God, this was the center of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, one of the most powerful empires in the world, and now it's a little tourist spot. <laughs> so we can't count on America going forever. It may, but it may not. Sure, yeah, we can't even count on humanity going forever. We can't even count on us going forever. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, I want to ask about friendship and creativity. One of the themes of this show, one of the things that we think about or talk about a lot is creativity itself in all of its dimensions, the creative process, what creativity is for. And specifically, you know, I'm thinking about your friendship with Wally Sean, but I know you've had many valuable and productive creative friendships as with your mentor, Jerzy Grotowski. In what ways has friendship been central to your work, your growth? It's certainly been central to my work as a director because if you're not really friends with your actors, if you don't really care for them, 
if you're just manipulating them for your own ends, the way a lot of directors do, the work will just not be as fruitful because when you work in a truly collective environment, which means friendship, creating work, then it's just the work of one mind and one mind is never as interesting as six or seven or eight. And I think that brings me to, in in your work with Grotowski, I, I guess this would be late 70s by the time he's he's in the forest and doing more kind of experiential theater. So that work, and then also these long productions you've been working on, like uh, Ibsen's Master Builder. 14 um, years in rehearsal. Yeah. And so it seems like what happened, and I mean, I think you say this explicitly in the book in some ways, that there was a movement away from theater as spectacle theater as as even necessarily needing an audience into theater as a space for human development right i want to talk a little bit about that about how that unfolds for example over a 14 year process what is that like and what do you learn that way that you don't in the I don't know, whatever, eight-week rehearsal process people often go through. The big difference, I think, is that when you come to rehearse, the actors, the directors, you're all looking stereotypically at the play and the characters. Vanya must be this. But the this is what you've either seen in many productions before, you've heard about. What you're not getting at is the subliminal unconscious of the playwright themselves. And so you have to chip away at the stereotype. You have to play with the stereotype, work with the stereotype, you know, until finally you just get bored with the stereotype. And then you have nothing. And out of that nothing comes something new. And this thing actors do, because I have some some experience in the theater, uh, this thing that actors tend to do where they're like looking for bits of business, they're looking for a moment, they're kind of accruing, you know, in a typical rehearsal process, they're accruing layers of character, maybe bits of movement, whatever. Over the course of a 14-year process, you must discover and discard a great deal, like is anything kept or is it just, is it really, does it really feel like what you're saying? You're somehow peeling away till you get at the soul of the character. Well, they're, they're both true. There, there are things that you keep and there are things that you peel away and peel away and peel away. I mean, if the theater is commercial and there's nothing wrong with commercial theater, Broadway theater has brought a lot of pleasure to an awful lot of people. And sure. I could go see... South Pacific over and over and over. But you have to get the play done in eight weeks. The economic climate in which you're doing the play demands that. And so it's natural to reach quickly for the best and most theatrical solutions that you can. Uh, If you work for a long, long time, you can find things you never imagined. Given that there is an economic element to that. I want to talk a little bit about that because I, I think a lot about the economics of art, you know, because obviously that determines who gets to make art, that determines what kind of art gets to be made. 
everything I've seen about what you're doing with these very long rehearsal processes, that's that it looks absolutely wonderful. I think the world needs more of that. And I wonder, you know, if you have any thoughts, you know, coming from privilege as you do and as I do. So I, I know something about having help financing one's art. Obviously, that hasn't been the case for you for a long time, I'm sure. But coming out of that, <laughs> what would you like to see change, if anything, to make it possible for that kind of art to really be dispersed throughout the culture rather than a rarefied corner of what's happening among some lifelong friends in New York? I don't know if there was some kind of subsidy that would help that. I think if there were, it would make a lot of people's lives easier, but it wouldn't necessarily make art. Okay, and why is that? Because art is made by people who have a calling, they have a vocation, and they're compelled to do it. They can't not do it. But what about, I guess what I'm talking about is people who are compelled to do it, but who are also compelled to work at McDonald's all day and then... Oh, um, the more help they could get, the better. There's no magic bullet, unfortunately, I suppose. But I, I, um, I look at America and I look at the economics of art and I know that there are people, I know that Canada, for example, does a much better job of supporting artists. And I don't know whether better art gets made as a result, but, but a lot more of it does. Yeah, not necessarily better. In Eastern Europe and in Poland specifically, mm, mm. Uh, during the communists, artists were simply not allowed, it was dangerous to make art. And they made some phenomenal art. Writers couldn't afford paper to write on, but somehow or other, they eked together enough money to get their paper and everything. Once Mm -hmm. communism and the dictatorships were over, art stopped. You talk a lot in the book and in the documentary, Andre Gregory, Before and After Dinner, you talk about the self and you talk, and even here earlier, you were saying how drawing and painting brought you back to like an original childhood self before life fucked with you and you had to then fuck back with it as it were. But I'm, what's interesting is that it, it feels like when I think of the kind of self you're talking about, the self that has had all that stuff peeled off of it and is free to just see and experience and be, that feels very close to me to what I think of from a Buddhist perspective as (laughs) non-self. So I'm wondering how you think about what you mean when you say self at this point. There's an example that I use, I think a couple of times, and this is not my memoir, of the actor Erlen Josephson, who was one of Ingmar Bergman's great actors. And I had a screening of my dinner with Andre for Bergman's company, because many of them had not seen it. And then he and I went out for lunch and he said this amazing thing, you know, because he was one of the greatest actors in the world. Mm. By then, I guess he was in his 70s. He said, you know, when I was young, I studied the voice, I studied movement, I listened to music, I read novels, uh, I learned how to move across the stage. I don't know where I would do that now, but I would like to find a school that could teach me how to walk down to the edge of the stage 
and just be in an ecstatic state that would illuminate, give light to the audience and inspire hope. I mean, in fact, he was already doing that, but he didn't know it. But I think what he was talking about, this thing of the soul is always, I sort of know there is a soul, but then I sort of wonder, well, what is the soul? I think he was talking about the emanation from his soul. For Buddhism, that would be in a constant state of transition. So, I mean, that's that's where the language gets slippery. The soul and the self makes us think of, especially in a Christian cosmology, it makes us think of a thing. But in fact, in fact, you're talking about an unfolding, like a constant... An unfolding. Blossoming. People sometimes, when they hear you talk about, say, the spiritual journey or something like that, mm. they think you're full of crap. But there is a difference between religion. If you take the meaning of the word religion, I think it has to do with binding and holding together and holding on. Spirit, Mm. though, is like a river. It just keeps flowing. It keeps changing. That's right. Have you read read Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism? Is this um, Chogyam Trungpa? Trungpa Rinpoche, yeah. I did read that a long time ago. and I, I loved it. And I remember laughing out loud at his description of people going on a meditation retreat and buying the most expensive cushion and new clothing. And I think a lot about that, about spiritual materialism, because there's a lot of it about these days. I mean, the wellness movement has brought us a a lot of new waves of spiritual materialism. Right at the very beginning, when you you used the word holy, I was interested to learn that during communism in Eastern Europe, there were theater groups They really weren't theater groups. They were really spiritual groups, but they called themselves theater and they produced theater because it was dangerous to call yourself a spiritual community. Interesting. And I learned that I think in the Middle Ages that the monks from a monastery, from many monasteries, would work all year on creating a play for Christmas and then they would share that play with their family, families and other, other communities. Uh, and they just do it for that one day. But the real goal was to create a theater that was holy. One would ask, well, what is holy? <laughs> and I would say, other than being rooted in kindness and in love, it's reaching that other dimension, which is within us. It's reaching the invisible self. And I think this relates to something you experienced working with Grotowski and his group. It's also, I think, about connection, about connection to the others, like coming out of the self and finding that union with everything. I briefly, one time after a production many years ago, for five minutes, I met Peter Brook, who is a wonderful being. I'm sure you've met him. He's great. He was like emanating light. And his wonderful book, The Empty Space, has that chapter about the holy theater. You know, and of course, as you know, the origins of Western theater are in the Dionysian rituals, which were themselves a kind of prayer, you could say, ecstatic, drunken prayer. 
yeah, I think that what's meant by holy is trying to get to that thing that we find very difficult to put a name on, you know, that sense of the sacred, that sense of awe. Howard Zinn was a neighbor and a friend up here on the Cape. And when Bush was elected for the second time, my wife and I were horrified by what Americans had done in the voting booth. And we went over to have breakfast with him. We said, what do we do, Howard? This is so awful. What do we do? And his answer was very surprising because here was a guy that did not like being called a liberal. He said, I'm a radical. Don't call me a liberal. He'd walked with Martin Luther King, you know. So his answer was surprising. He said, well, here's what I think you do. I think you have to do all the usual stuff. You know, you, you should march, you demonstrate, write your congressperson. But he said, most of all, make your art because art brings light in the darkness. I was thinking about this quite a lot in the run-up to this election and wrestling with a lot of guilt because I wasn't raised as an activist and activism, political activism was never something I did. I think in some ways because that arena is very black and white and I'm always drawn toward literature and nuance and ambiguity. And there's something inescapably stupid about the clash of opinions in the public sphere, but it's necessary and it's the only way, or it's one way that that kind of change happens. And so I did finally manage to, you know, I marched some, I wrote some letters to people trying to encourage them to vote. I did phone banking. But also I was thinking about exactly what you're saying and what Howard Zinn said, which is that if the forces of light and darkness are going to clash, and let's say it gets really, really bad, even war, God forbid, what is going to be left after the cataclysm? That's the question. And if you want a world after the cataclysm, then you need art, you need culture, you need beauty, you need those seeds. I totally agree with you. On the other hand, if there is going to be a cataclysm in your lifetime, it'll be global warming. And you can't do that much about global warming, I guess, with art. I mean, Wally wrote an extraordinary play Grasses of a Thousand Colors that we're doing as a podcast. And that's predicting exactly what is happening today. And he wrote it about 20 years ago. But I think each of us, and I know I'm guilty of this myself, each of us has to be less selfish about what we're doing to contribute to global warming and more assertive about the actions we can take to stop it. You know, one of the themes of this season of the show, this time I asked friends to give me a word and I asked them for it to have something to do with the natural world. And so I want to ask you, it's such a big subject, but anything you want to say about what role the natural world has played in your life, your work, your growth, the kinds of things that you're talking about in the book? Well, we have two cats. And the cats have changed my life. I watch them all day. And they are such great teachers because they teach me to be in the moment. They teach me how important it is to go with whatever impulse you have. They cause no harm. They're Mm. divinely sweet creatures. So I've learned a lot from my cats. 
And then Cindy and I are living on Cape Cod, which is probably one of the most exquisite natural places in the world where the light never stays the same for more than two minutes. And the light is the same light that the painter Hopper painted. So anywhere we go here right now, I'm looking at out of windows at the most amazingly beautiful light. So nature is always around me. Thank God. I love the the part in your book where you're talking about what painting and drawing have been for you and the way that it sort of teaches you to see the world again. And I also love your willingness to do it, to start it much later in your life. And you directly address, I think, in the person of your friend, the photographer, Richard Avedon, you kind of push back against any objections that anyone might have to that, to say, whatever that reflexive idea that mastery, you must begin from childhood or it's useless, but that you've been able to adopt that thing later on, bring it into your life, and that and that it really has transformed the way you see the world. As I'm sure you know, the word amateur means to love. And I like to think that I've been an amateur all my life. I've never written a book before, but this is not my memoir. seems to be doing sensationally well. (laughs) I can't imagine why or how I did it, but I've never done it before. I probably will never do it again because it's such hard work. But there's something about what the Chinese call beginner's mind, to start with doing something that you don't know how to do. And incidentally, for any listeners you have who are over 60 or something, they say that doing something you've never done before really helps prevent dementia. Mm. It builds certain muscles in the brain. One of the strange, perhaps positive aspects of this awful plague we're going through is that it strips us of our habits. Right. And, you know, we have the habit of going to the theater, we have the habit of going to restaurants, we have the habits of seeing friends, but this has taken away all of our habits. And a lot of my friends are saying, oh my God, it's boring to be in lockdown. Of course, it's good to be in lockdown because you save your life and you save the lives of other people. But we're breaking habits. And the breaking of those habits could bring out something startlingly new in ourselves that we can't even imagine. You're faced with a choice. You can either be miserable and struggle in the chains of the new situation, or you can adapt and accept it. And I think whether or not something new and creative emerges out of that acceptance, the acceptance itself is a powerful lesson, the letting go of the attachment to whatever it was you thought you needed. Absolutely. And Cindy and I, who were having a wonderful time together with each other, I think our appreciation of each other has deepened in these last very difficult six or seven months. I think it's been good for my family too with all respect and sorrow to everyone out there who's lost family members and and so on. But it's also brought us closer together. 
So I want to leave us on a crazy note, which is the word of the episode that I want us to reflect on a little bit. So I chose this one for you, thinking it might be interesting and productive. The word is from Chris Dunlap, and it's a word I didn't know the meaning of before, so I'm happy to explain it. Autotomy, which is in nature when an animal ejects a limb of its body, be it a tail or an arm or a leg, just severs a part of itself and lets it go in order to survive <laughs> or in order to, in order to adapt to a situation. What comes to mind is that often when people get older, and I'm now 86, they try compulsively to keep on doing what they've always done before, while in fact, you have to let that go. There are lots of things you would like to be able to do. You like your two arms, your two legs, what have you. <laughs> but I think that aging is to accept the inevitable with grace. Right. And we have many limbs, things that we've used in the past, and we just have to let them go. I absolutely loved This Is Not My Memoir, so thank you from one reader. Thank you for writing it. It's full of wonderful stories and wisdom and kind of a panorama of a fascinating period in the history of American art. And thank you for this conversation. This has been wonderful. Well, I've enjoyed it. You're great. That beautiful theme music is by Emre Gotts, my son. Special thanks to Chris Dunlap for the word of the episode, Autotomy, and to Adi Sadak for the instrumentals of the episode. I'll be back in two weeks with Tim Minchin, the Australian singer-songwriter and lyricist of musicals such as Matilda and Groundhog Day. You can learn more about me on my website, jasongotts.com, and I'd be grateful if you could take a moment to rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. <laughs>